Two Poor Bastards contains explicit content and drunken ramblings. Listener discretion is advised. listening to episode six of Two Poor Bastards. This episode, we are going to cover uh, Elijah Craig, barrel-proof Kentucky bourbon. Excited about that. We're going to cover Predator 2 as part of the Predator Week and just kind of get it into some... uh, Talk a little bit about Convergence, talk a little bit about Ghost in the Shell. We had watched that. And then we've got a shelf turd that we want to discuss. Uh, we, having said that, Kyle, let's get right into that whisk. All right. So today, um, like Eric mentioned, we're going to have Elijah Craig. Uh, but we are having the barrel proof version. I am forcing Eric to drink the highest proof whiskey that I have ever been able to grab. This bad boy... Comes out of the barrel, no water is added, none of that bullshit. You're just getting the pure whiskey from the barrel. This stuff clocks in at 139.4 proof. So that's (laughs) 69.7% alcohol. We are 0.3% away from it being classified as a hazardous material. I'm excited. And I don't know that you're forcing me. I'm excited about this. I'm not, maybe not be excited after I drink it. I'm excited, no less. But it's it's intense. I mean, a lot of people with stuff like this, they may add ice. They may add water. Both of those are hate. <laughs> we're not going to do any of that. We're drinking this neat. But we're, we're drinking it neat. We're taking it as it is. Um, so a little yeah, bit about are. Elijah Craig is uh, historically it had been an age-stated whiskey. So they had uh, a bunch of different years for it. 12 years is the most common. There is also 18, 20, 21, 23-year-old versions of it as well. But um, the Elijah Craig that you get now, whether it be the the standard one or the barrel proof, are uh, non-age stated. The bottle that I have that we are tasting right now is one of the older ones that definitely says 12 years on it. Now, it's not one of the older ones that had the big red 12 on the front label, it's the ones that they put in the weird transition zone where it just said 12 on the text on the back of the bottle before they slowly and, well, not slowly. They kind of quickly went right into non-age statement. But And that transition zone is right before the danger zone, correct? It's, yes. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, shit, this is the danger zone right here. A um, little bit about Elijah Craig. Comes with the Heaven Hill Distillery. Um Pre or post fire? This is definitely uh, post fire. Um, fire was a little, little bit ago. Um, Elijah Craig as a person is—I don't know if it's accurate, inaccurate, like a legend or whatever—is seen as the father of um, bourbon whiskey. It's said that he discovered that charring the barrels. You know, gave it the distinct flavor profile that we know now. 
Um, I don't know if there's really any solid proof of it, but whatever the hell happened, whoever figured out that charring the inside of barrels was a good thing, they fucking did it right. So it could be another one of those romanticized fluffing of events. Yeah, definitely. Because is it my understanding is that charring of barrels has been happening for a very long time. Like it's not, my understanding is not Amer- even derived from America. I could be reading my facts wrong on that one. Maybe it's just using oak barrels, but I thought I read somewhere that like the Scotch of, you know, Scottish were using charred barrels for hundreds of years. Maybe. I mean, that's something that I haven't really looked into, but that could, that could well be a possibility. So, you know, maybe Elijah Craig being the, the father of bourbon as we know it, possibly. I'm not sure. You can't fucking trust that label for shit. We know that. <laughs> well, this comes from a reputable place. So Okay, well, you know, fair enough. But even so, no reputable places ever romanticize the facts about well, the company. I was just saying, like, I, besides the, you know, charring the barrel thing and, you know, not trusting what it says on a label... I mean, I know it came from Heaven Hill. I know that the shit isn't somebody else's product. I know where it's distilled. I know where it comes from. Fair enough. But fuck all this. Fuck all this. We need to. We need to drink this. I don't know if I'm ready. We to, need to uh, smell it. We need to drink it. And we need to talk about it. Yeah, and it, it's not going to suck itself. And I. I actually, you know, thinking about it, I should have gotten a, a regular bottle for you to also try instead of having you just jump into this because it, I would say, at least in my opinion, that the flavor profiles are radically different between the, the between the regular stuff and this barrel proof. Now, is that simply because of the watering down process or is that, do you think that there is a uniquely... Sub- it, it, it would be because, yeah, of the proof. So if Not we really. watered this down, we could, in, in theory, make it a regular... Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. All right, let's, let's get into the sniffing. All right. So I get a I get a blast straight to the nose. It is it's very intense. Like <clears throat> if a smell could burn nose hairs, like this would. And like while it's room temperature, the what you smell and what you're getting off of it definitely feels hot. Uh, most definitely, there's definitely just heat coming right out of the glass. I get like burnt sugar molasses for the smell. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I could definitely, oh, yep. See, I stuck my nose way inside there and got a nice deep inhale, and I got the molasses. If we put these, if we put this into Glen Karen, then it would really fucking roast your nose. We should probably just do that every time, right? I mean, since we, we are sniffing. We should, I suppose. Okay. But there's something about drinking it out of a lowball-style glass, too, that I really prefer the feel. Sure. But whatever. Whatever. You can't see what we're doing. You're just listening to us talk about this. About to get fucking blasted is what's happening. All right, let's taste this. Okay. It definitely makes your taste buds fucking feel alive. (laughs) It's intense. Uh, Unlike other whiskeys, I could not just let this sit in my mouth for any extended (laughs) period of time. That's what I did. 
Woo! Because it really gets, yeah, if you aren't used to it, it's going to do that. And then you'll feel like a tickle in the back of your throat. I will say the molasses scent follows through with the taste. Yeah. And which is great. I would say that for as strong as the proof is, it's maintains that molasses, and I'm not going to say smooth, but a caramel sort of essence. Molasses cookie e. There's a name for that. What's the I, name for the cookies made with molasses? I don't know. I feel stupid right now. Someone's going to be like, come on, guys, really? Yeah, you think of it later. Fucking tards. But it's, it, I don't like those cookies, but I, I'm okay with this. Yeah. I, and it's definitely it's one of those things that lingers in your mouth. So I took my sip like a few seconds ago or whatever it is, and it's still it's lingering. My mouth feels like it's thoroughly been... It's your mouth is buzzing, buzzing with <laughs> right, this yeah. uh, Elijah Craig, and it's not bad. Like, you almost try to get me scared a little bit, or like, get me nervous about it. It's not a bad. It is definitely strong, but it it's very flavorful. It's not harsh, for as strong of a proof as it is, it it definitely like electrifies your taste buds in your mouth a little bit, but. It's not like sucking on a, you know, a piece of charcoal either. No. So that is a good, I would say it's an impressive thing for a, for a bourbon to pull that off. Be very strong, but still carry through the, the good, sweet molasses, Mm -hmm. uh, flavors, caramelish. Like it's got a really, like, I feel like I just had a, a caramel in my mouth or caramel, caramel. I th- you know, it depends on where you're from, what you call it. Okay. I, c- I say caramel. You say caramel. I'm just like, okay. I don't really. Are you British? Are you <laughs> adding a U to things? The problem is like, I watch so much tele- television from across the world that you're just kind of bombarded by the different ways that people say things. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really know. I don't know how to talk anymore. Because... We're from Minnesota, so don't be too critical of us. Yeah, I'm going to take another sip of this shit. Cause... I'm going to take a bunch more sips of well, this. Well, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this. But you did. You coughed. Yeah. So I definitely was not expecting. Now let's see if the second shot in the mouth is as strong. And it's just like, I would really love to have someone on the show who doesn't drink whiskey and hit them with another barrel proof one mm-hmm. just to see how they handle it. I would expect them not to take it well, but if they took it like a champ and they handled it, I would be very impressed. I really, so it hits me when I'm swallowing, but when it's in my mouth, it's fine. It's good. I taste molasses. It's what I fucking let it go down. And I'm like, <laughs> And it's like usually with this other barrel proof ones after I drink it, I do. I, I feel a little tickle or something in the back of my throat that I don't get when, you know, when I'm drinking anything else, it's right. only these high proofed barrel proof guys that do that to me. So we will definitely, and this is a forewarning. So we're straight up warning any of the listeners who may end up being guests that if you happen to be one of the first guests, you you might be in for a fun surprise. For us, not for them. Because I definitely... Because the thought of just having people on that don't usually drink 
bourbon or whiskey straight anyways, give them a fucking straight to barrel proof. Holy shit. That is. Yeah. Crank it right to 11. (laughs) (laughs) Well, go big or go home. Welcome to my world. Welcome. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to say it's really good. It's very good. I'm glad that you like it. I would say this is not something that I would drink every single day because it is definitely a punch in the face a little bit. You might not have an esophagus if you did that. Right. But it's not available. You know, it it comes out every, I don't know, I want to say maybe like three to four months. They release a little bit of it. It's not a regular Gotcha. Bottling that's available all the time, like the standard Elijah Craig. So hopefully we get the heads up now when something like this comes our way. So what is a an Elijah Craig a barrel proof bottle run for? Uh retail around seventy ish. So it's a very reasonable bourbon for a price point. And for the amount of liquor you're getting in that fucking bottle. Yeah. That's I would say that's pretty good value yes for the the amount of booze that's in here 70 percent, basically now and you get this in minnesota just fine yeah yeah i got that here because i thought that there was a for minnesota that there was a cap to the proof that you could sell because i know that like true um everclear moonshine and then certain absinths are actually cut down, I think, for Minnesota or other states that have a certain limit on alcohol. If that's the per- case, I don't know how this circumvents that. This and some of the uh, offerings in the Buffalo Trace Antique Collection, because I know one year the George T. Stag was 144 proof. Fucking A. For that, <laughs> yeah. It's pretty intense. Uh, Yeah, I would definitely say so. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really digging this. Honestly, I really am. It's, you know, now that I've kind of blasted my esophagus and my nose a little bit, I mean, I'm really getting the the sweet molasses, the kind of the caramel. It's really making me feel like my body temperature is really going up. Uh, uh huh. I'm getting hot. Like, this is the stuff to drink on the negative twenty degree days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah. was just going to say you went through that like a champ, but I take that back after that cough. Yeah, no, it was, as I said, in my mouth, fine. Putting her down, she gives me a little kick. But it's good. I really like it. Good. Have a little bit more if you want, then. <laughs> I'm feeling warm. It's, choose your destiny. Either that or we'll <laughs> step it down to some regular proof stuff. We have too much of this. This episode might get dirty. (laughs) Sloppy is probably the better word for it. I'm going to have another sip's worth. Just the sip. Just a little bit. Get it while you can. Yeah, because there's not much left in this. No. And like I said, there there won't be another one that's age-stated like that or probably that high a proof because it's not going to be aged as long. So what you're saying is you're not going to sign this and make it a dream catcher? You might keep this bottle? Oh, no. Well, definitely. I won't hold on to this. Holding on to a bottle, I don't... It's kind of dumb? It doesn't do it for me. 
Fair enough. So for those of you who are listening, what we do is we save the bottles as we work through them. We sign them, we decorate them, and then for those folks who will eventually uh, contribute to Patreon, we will give you one of our bottles from an episode signed by us with the episode number inscribed on it and all that good stuff. So that's a future thing, something that you know I'm really excited about. And someday, someone will get this uh, Elijah Craig age-stated bourbon, which is by itself doesn't exist anymore. Now, do they make certain limited runs with age statements, or is it just done totally forever? It, they still do... As far as I know, they'll still be doing the 18 and the 23-year-old ones. I'd be very curious to taste those. Now, didn't we have a conversation earlier that some people are like, this is trash? Uh, yeah, we were talking about that. So we were in the car. We were going to register for uh, Convergence here, the convention that we were going to. Um, and I was talking about one of the tastings that I went to a few years ago that a liquor store held that we did a bunch of like the really exclusive releases for the year. Uh, and we, we got a sheet of paper that had all the bourbons that we had listed out on it with a space so we could write down our tasting notes or whatever. And I was just reflecting that when we got to the 18 and the 23 year old Elijah Craig's, uh, one of the notes that I wrote down, I believe it was on the 18 year old one was that it tastes exactly like my parents cabin smells, (laughs) which was like that musty disgusting basement type thing which i'm sure most of you you know what i'm talking about but that shit tasted exactly like that and like i'm not one to usually waste my whiskey and while it was disgusting and i thought it was terrible i still drank it two of the guys who were at the table with me they just instant dumped out their stuff they didn't even give a shit they're like this is fucking awful and dumped it it was bad but those are single barrel offerings it might have just happened that I got two skunk barrels and not, you know, and somewhere out there, there's two super cherry barrels of it that went into a bottle. Now, there's a lot that goes into aging barrels and that uh, affects the taste, right? It's temperature, temperature fluctuations, uh, the composition of, of the char, because even though you char a barrel consistently, there's still some... There's, there are things different in the wood. char levels, too. And so there's all those various things that really could contribute to uh, the taste of a of a bourbon or a whiskey. And then the longer you age it, the longer it sits in those environments, the more impact it's going to have on the final product yeah, of it. Where it sits in the rickhouse as it's aging, there's sweet spots, you know, that's in the middle the outliers get a little more extreme fluctuations than the rest of it. So those are no. seen as not as desirable. Now, do are those typically controlled environments? No. So they just sit not outside? Not really for bourbon. It's not really controlled, no. So that's interesting. You would think that to have a consistent product that you would want a controlled environment to have. Of, or is that part of like just the charm of bourbon? Like It's part of the charm of bourbon like it, because of these radical changes in temperature and seasons and everything that helps age and, you know, contribute to the flavor of it. While something like scotch, 
you know, that is, you can see that as being stored in a controlled environment, whether it's like a cave or an underground thing. And that usually contributes to it being able to be aged longer because it's, they don't have wild temperature changes and things aren't too different. Like what we do here in the USA, by the way, it's the 4th of July. So America, bourbon, (laughs) bourbon. Fuck. Yeah. So, uh, is that our, our piece on whiskey? That's it. That's all I really got to say about this. All right. So what I'd like to do for our middle part is get into another whiskey that we had. It was recommended to me by someone and I'm not going to hurt, hate them forever, but I am a little disappointed. So we did a wood Woodford reserve single malt and man, it was not good. So my description of how this particular thing tastes like is iodine and vegetable oil would be the bet. That's like how I would describe the flavor. Like, ugh, the both the the smell was really really funky, kind of going back to what I was saying about my parents' cabin smelling. It smelled really funky. Had a really vegetal taste to it too, which wasn't very good. So yeah, it's uh, Woodford Reserve Distiller Select. Uh, Kentucky straight malt whiskey. So I'm assuming that the mash bill on this was probably just 100% malted barley instead of having corn or rye, um, the two other usual components in it. Yeah, it's a real funky... I'm not a fan. I would say that to me, this is a shelf turd. Definitely a shelf turd. And, you know... I'm thankful that it's it wasn't super expensive. It was just rare for the amount that the dude had so there wasn't a lot of it so you know a limited release so thank goodness that it is limited so not that many people but i'm gonna like i'm gonna hide this like in a cupboard back way far away because it would be a sin to get rid of it but i'm definitely not gonna drink it you could be like me when i try to push off my disgusting ones at my friends and they're just like oh no i don't want that (laughs) That I might do. Maybe if you could find out some sort of mixed drink to put this in. That's the only, but you know, just my concern being is that that weird vegetable taste. Like, I don't know how, I'll try it. Maybe it'll make a good old fashioned. I'm not. I don't know. I was forcing myself to drink it. I could get through it, but it's not something that I would sip and enjoy. No. And, mm -mm. and And after we tried to drink this. We went right to Abelora 12 year. Yeah, so we so we wanted to do a comparison between the 16 year and the 12 year. Uh, I will say that we didn't drink it out of the Glencairns. So but it was still very good. All the all the same profiles are still there but just not to the same degree in the 16 exactly. year old. So it's de- it definitely gets my seal of approval. That's certainly not a shelf turd like this stuff was. Yeah, so uh Two thumbs up, six out of red schlitzes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> plenty of uh, schlitzes. So, like, when I talk about a shelf turd, it would either be something that's like really disgusting, or it could just be the really fucking cheap stuff—the shit that just sits on the shelf and takes up space, like Jack Daniels or Jim Beam, that old crow, just garbage like that, which tastes disgusting as well. So, yeah. 
Uh, I would say the Woodford Reserve has its own brand of disgusting for itself. That I, I that was the first time that I tasted that out of a whiskey. Is are there other things that you have tasted that are similarish to that? Well, yeah. So like that weird funk and the vegetal thing. I've I've had that before. And also, that's something that you can get out of some of these craft distilleries. There's shit that they age for like two weeks to. Gotcha. This is disgusting. All right. So, yeah, and you know what? The two most recent things I've had from Woodford Reserve have been both disgusting. So there's this, and then the last one I had was their double oaked business. And why would you double oak something? It's to make it taste a certain way. I don't know. It tasted disgusting. So <laughs> if just, that's the way they intended it to taste, then I don't like it. Yeah, because I might like. I understand like putting it in like a sherry cask. It's going to give it a different uh, flavor profile. It's going to do something different. But like, you like the color purple? Make everything the color purple. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I don't really know. You like purple? Make it purpler. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure. And I'm a layman. I don't understand the in- intricacies of distilling and what all the various factors play. So I, I'm definitely coming. My opinion is of the ignorant kind. But to me, on a, I suppose my logic, it doesn't make any sense to double uh, age something or double casket in the same thing. Unless they did a light char and a heavy char or something to yeah, make it. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I, I haven't really looked into it, but I just was like, I haven't tried that. I think I'll try it. Right. And the bar was out of everything else I wanted to try. So that was my, like, okay, I'll do this because of that. Exactly. So I'm not happy with Woodford Reserve right now. And I don't blame you. Um, I, it certainly was not an impressive introduction into that. I don't give a shit how limited run it is. It Just because something is limited run, limited edition, does not make no. it good. No. So do not be fooled by, I only got three of these in. It's, oh my God. Mm-mm. No, don't fall for that shit. So uh, next thing is we sat down and watched Ghost in the Shell, the movie. The live-action movie. The live-action movie. So the last episode we did anime, we were discussing Ghost in the Shell, and you were talking about how you enjoyed the the live-action version of the movie. So I sat down with you and actually watched the thing. And I will say I enjoyed it as as a movie, as a giving a the spirit of the anime it it's there like i got a lot of moments of of like this is the dream of seeing this movie live action yeah so it number one is shot amazing the visual effects absolutely it looks crazy. great crazy you know where it starts to um lose me a little bit is I would say the dumbing down of the subject matter. I really feel like this movie made an attempt to be catered to a Western audience, but not an actual Western audience. What someone would think a Western audience wants without actually knowing what they want at all. So uh, they, what they do is they get rid of the whole um, AI subplot of the original movie and make the main he's not sort of a villain not villain make him 
the first generation of the experiment that makes Motoko. Also, they kind of mix up Motoko's origin sort of a little bit. To... I feel like they, they give it a backstory to explain the quote-unquote whitewashing that people had a problem with. Yeah, I mean... But the thing is, again, and we had this discussion before last episode, was that those characters were meant to be Caucasian to begin with. And so I don't really understand the need to whitewash further. Well, here's the thing that I had a thought on a while back. So you've got a basically a brain in a, I don't know if at this point you would call it robotic or cyborg. Cyborg is what it would be. And so you've got a brain, a human brain, and a cyborg body. I mean, the major could have been a 70-year-old dude, 70-year-old black dude who got put into a sexy white or Asian girl's body at some Absolutely. point. You know, you don't know. There's no, I mean, it could be. And I th- what's interesting is that I think the actual anime itself explores that where the movie kind of doesn't do that. Like it keeps it like I get for the sake of keeping it non-complicated that that's what they wanted to do, but I think they underestimated people's tolerance to complicated plot. Cuz if you look at how like Westworld and Game of Thrones and these other shows and movies are are very popular, they're convoluted, complicated. You almost need a flow chart to keep track of everything that's going on, and people eat that shit up. Yeah. So I don't think that if, if they would have kept more of the, the headier uh, soul, what is a soul, what is it to be alive, what is it to be human aspects of the original anime, that would have been bad. Now, that's sort of like my biggest beef is just like they could have not dumped it down and it wouldn't would have been I think it would have played way better. I think it would have I think we could have got past the whitewashing thing if they really would have done some soul searching. If they would if they transcended the race question that people brought up about it and really went to what it is it to be human and really explored the original plot. Perfect. It would have been great. What is it to be human? I don't know. I But going I, back to what you were saying about, you know, who is this person really? I mean, at the end of the animated movie, the major is in a child's body. Yes. So, and determining her own path. That's the thing. At the end of the mm-hmm. the anime, she is detached from initially at least from her old job and striking her own path. Whereas this, she's still very much a part of section 11, 9. Section 9. I Listen, there's there's, a, it's a, it, there's some section that she's a part of. Yeah. Uh, cesarean section, I don't know. She, Viva he, section? They. They. And it really transcends. So, And that's the thing about the anime oh. is before a lot of these modern questions that we're all kind of uh, wrestling with, was it to be human? What What is gender? What is person? Who am I? What is I? All of those things. Like the anime so perfectly kind of... It doesn't really dig into it, but it like it really hints at this larger question of what identity is. And the movie kind of sidesteps some of those more esoteric existential questions to tell a straightforward narrative, which I think Michael Pitt, who plays the sort of 
antagonist. He's an antagonist. He's not necessarily a villain, but he's definitely the person that's pushing the events forward in this movie. He's fine. He could have been exactly him. I like Michael Pitt as an actor. Uh, so I thought like that was all well done. All the characters, the representations, I thought were all great. As you said, uh, Batau. Batau is in the movie. It's fucking great. Great. Best part. I would say he's the best part of the movie. He's really amazing. And I like the fact that they did some service to, they reproduce certain scenes to like an 80% degree mm-hmm. in the movie, which is really cool to see those things on the screen. Uh, and I, I think that would have been fine. And so I'm not saying that they had to redo the original movie frame by frame. I think they could have, you know. I mean, at least they threw us a fucking bone. Absolutely. It was really the way that I, I think, see it, the way that Hollywood works. So Yeah. I And, you know, honestly, like Scarlett Johansson, I'm fine with her playing the major. Like I have no... Yeah, sorry, dude. Ain't gonna happen. You're getting blasted. It's so weird recording recording during the day. I know this is our first <laughs> recording when the sun's out. <laughs> so, it, go ahead. I just wanted to say, like, regarding Scarlett Johansson's performance, a lot of people said that it was, like, wooden and she didn't do a great job of acting, and it was kind of robotic. Ha ha. Okay, here's a person who's a robot. Who's okay. had their memories wiped. Who's had their memories wiped. And is trying to figure out how to fucking act. I of, think of I think that that's the perfect kind of thing because you know in in the anime the major you know doesn't quite act like a normal human being. In the anime, she's definitely detached. Like if you look at the anime, like her eyes almost are never blinking. Yeah, and she and are like open wide, staring off into the distance, almost and like looking. still and talking very intensely. And so, yeah, I'm fine. Like, I think Scarlett Johansson did a very serviceable... I would say better than serviceable. I think she did a, a, a good job in that role. She was no Bato. She's no ba- but... But she did it well. Yeah, and here's opinion. the thing. Bato, even in the anime, Bato was fucking baller. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's hard and, to... You know, and you got the little bit of sexual tension between them, too, even. Like, you do get in the movie, the, or the series, even. Yeah. So, I, you know, my gripes, I suppose, are minor with larger implications, maybe. I, again, I give that movie a seven. I don't think it should be wiped off the face of the planet. I think it's a totally serviceable live-action entry into that world. I think there are some things that they could improve on. I think they need to stop underestimating the intelligence of the audience, because I think right now people really want to dive into what it is to be human, what it is to, you know, all these existential things. So I think they could go like all up in the guts of what it is to be human and to be alive and come out of that and get a, maybe an Oscar. Anyways, I digress. That's my piece on that. Uh, Let's see. So we talked about our shelf turd and would reserve is terrible. Uh, Convergence. So we picked up our passes today to avoid lines tomorrow, you took me through a walkthrough of the labyrinth of that fucking place. <laughs> yes, it is a holy. It's kind shit. of like a maze. The hotel is big, and I. Uh, so you know, you kept telling me this whole time, like, "Hey, you need to get in. You need to uh, look at the stuff you want to do. You need to like see what's going on, what you're interested in." And 
there's so much stuff every single day. Yes. I got, honestly, I got lost. So, you know, there's some, some things I just, I wrote down that you didn't mention before. So, uh, some things I'm interested in, history of the North Country Galaxians. I don't even know what that is. I, I, I was just like, what in the actual fuck? And, you know, on the schedule, if you click on the things, a lot of them don't give you a description either of what it is. So how, how, how do you know? How would you know? I don't know. I have no idea either. So I saw that. It did give a description. Then there is the, like, there's, you know it's a nerd convention when they're asking questions and delving into things that no one cares. Like, why? Yeah. So, like. The physics of the Infinity Stones is one of the panels. And they there's a lot of panels that break down particular elements of some fandom or some either magical or made like leap of faith, leap of logic thing. Like leave it to a nerd to try to rationalize something that is not meant to be rational. So I thought that was was interesting. Of course, there is a uh, My Little Pony Festival of Lights in case anyone needed. Of course, this episode will show, or not show, it will debut post after the convention. But I was like, okay, of course, there's no convention without My Little Pony being involved some fucking hour. I mean, and just to, you know, let the audience know, this convention basically covers all of pop culture. It's not dedicated to one thing like anime or furries or any of No, those and there are panels about every single... So there is a, a panel on the movie Blade. So there's a retrospective... Yes, the 20th, I believe, I believe it's the 20th anniversary. anniversary. And that's something that I would like to go to yeah. because I am very passionate about the movie Blade. So we should do that because I'm curious. The one thing that I'm really curious about with all of these panels is... Uh, what is the quality of information thought that they're bringing to a discussion? It's all over the road. I mean, you can go to some that suck. I mean, typically the people that they have up moderating the panel, they know quite a bit of what they're talking about. But, I mean, it just depends. I The best panel I ever went to was the Mad Max retrospective where we talked about all the you know entries into the Mad Max world. And it was fucking great. Best one ever. And then you go to some weird one like how to meet people at con. <laughs> yeah. And the people up front are trying to, you know, delicately talk to the socially inept in the audience asking questions. Oh boy. Where it just turns ridiculous and is entertainment in its own right, which we will be going to a few of those as well. One of them is uh, putting the con in consent. I'm very excited one about that. This. I want to go yeah. to to Watch this dumpster fire burn. <laughs> yeah. Cosplay is not consent. Or maybe get some tips for myself. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> you never know. So there's a few things uh, I'm definitely interested. I That's the thing is like, you know, there's a supernatural retrospective. There's a millennium retrospective. But what can be said? I guess like to me, it's like having never been to this, I'm really thinking what can you add to this that I haven't already researched or YouTubed. You might be surprised. Exactly. It I'm would... going there to really go and, and see what the fuck people are, are up to and what they're 
Because essentially, they're doing what we're doing right now. I was just going to say that. Yes, it's what we're. It's going to turn out to be like what we're doing right now. Yet there's an audience, and then they ask questions and add to it. Which brings us to you know, if we're still doing this in a year, uh, we're definitely going to do our panel live. Live there. Yes, that would be. That so that's great. one of our ambitions for the future, if you will. That and being officially sponsored by uh, West Seventh Liquor Barrel. Like, if those two things could happen, we are good to go. So um, I'm I'm excited about Convergence. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, there is, as you said, it covers every spectrum of nerddom you could possibly grasp. There's... There's a whole thing on like how to treat people with disabilities in like writing for comic books, like specifically that, like yeah. people with disabilities in comics. How do you add that in? How do you add representation? Oh, there's also one about how the Hulk is a premenopausal metaphor panel. That's insane. I didn't even see that. So that that's what I'm saying. Like you re- you're reading this stuff and you're going people are reading into some shit here cuz I'm pretty sure that the Hulk is not a metaphor for a pre or post or during menopausal woman. Uh but I'm you know what? I'm I'm morbidly curious as to how that is going to be presented. Is it going to sway me to think in that direction i know the like, conversation might not even go in that direction i mean one year i went to a panel which was uh pc versus console gaming jesus and christ what it turned into was not like comparing and contrasting you know say playing games on one system or another it turned out into people talking about hardware specifics on their pcs and that's like it was a bit, like what is this we weren't even talking about the differences they're just talking about what gear is inside their computer <laughs> so there is there is a bit of of quality chaos. control yeah there's not guaranteed but and that's what i like about it there's definitely the sense of like danger to this convention because anyone can present anyone could go there it's really a celebration of the non-professional it's not like e3 it's not like these other comic-con these huge conventions it's really a handcrafted homebrew nerd celebration where anyone gets a crack at, you know, talking about whatever they're passionate about. So in that way, I'm very excited about it. I feel like being able to expose your, your brand, your ideas to, you know, potentially 7,000 people and get recognized. I think that's a, a magical thing. Some of the fire crash and burn things that we're probably going to witness also magical for a different reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so overall, you know, again, I'm excited to hear. It. We'll recap obviously after you know episode seven will be the recap of uh, convergence and and trying to be able to bring everything into my mind and and uh, spit it back out for the the conversation. But I'm excited. Um, we'll try to show you what the convention was like with our voices. With our voices, indeed. Sound mouth sound effects will ensue. Uh, let's see. So we are officially on YouTube after 
about a week of trying to fuck around with trying to convert our audio format and make it a video and all this shit. Like I finally got figured out. It sucks. So for those of you who prefer it on YouTube, you're fucking welcome. (laughs) Please listen. Please listen, but you're fucking welcome because that is a pain in the ass. So, and I've gone as far as to include slides and kind of some stuff in there. And, And I suppose as I have more time and I'm doing this in tandem to the regular editing of the episodes that Maybe I'll add like some show notes or some th- additional Enjoy the photos. PowerPoint presentation that accompanies. Yeah, the podcast. I, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'll do that. But let's just say it is a long and tedious process to convert an MP3 format into a movie format that YouTube will accept. Hey, hey, hey! They don't want to hear our problems. They just want to hear the show. I, anyways, so that we're officially on there, and uh, so. You know, we kind of joke that, you know, if we if this doesn't work, we've got the uh, option the, of killing ourselves, killing ourselves, or starting the porn studio. Uh, you know, the finger banging POV, <laughs> <laughs> power glove finger banging POV, finger blast, <laughs> finger blast POV. Even better. One of the other Is things. P- Can you do dot POV? Is that like a thing yet <laughs> so i, I really think, feel like that's untapped <laughs> if it isn't dude there is infinite amount of of dot whatever so one of the things we could convert our website to just doing wall art and we could uh do it just towards like soccer moms but instead of like live laugh love we could do butts farts poop <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we do it in soccer mom calligraphy oh man and that's it. That's let's not do that. <laughs> uh, but that's my. That was kind of my my thought. Like the riff on the conversation we're having about power glove finger blasting POV is you turn that website into something that maybe generates some money. Power glove. Power glove. It's so bad. <laughs> so let's uh, dive into. The final part. So we're gonna get into you know what, and I'm like this is perfect because I'm feeling like, like right at level where I need to be You're to talk properly about, juiced up to talk I, about like, this movie. I'm just at the right level to talk about Predator Two, or as I like to call it, Predator. Predator Two. <laughs> so I'll just I'll just kick it off. So Predator Two, to me, is a movie that I'm very passionate about. Mm-hmm. For years, I have been championing championing this movie as a great sequel. Now, a lot of people disagree with me, but I have publicly stated that I will fist fight anyone who thinks that Predator 2 is a bad movie. But I think it is the perfect sequel um, for a few reasons. One, a lot of people complain that, oh, you know, it's not in the jungle, Arnold's not in the movie, this, that, and the other thing. It's not like the thing that I knew, that I know, that I saw before. Yeah, so the thing that I believe makes it such a great sequel is because it takes such a sideways turn and you get something else. Now you're in the middle of Los Angeles. You are in, at the time, what would have been a like lawless future where drug cartels are running things. The lawless future of 1997. Um, the ozone layer talk probably you know influenced them to make it 109 degrees during the movie. You've got uh, the police, Danny Glover. You've got the scientist, Gary fucking Busey, in this movie. You've got the only man 
who's been killed by the alien, the Terminator, and the Predator in the movie. You got Bill Paxton. The classic, the late, the great, the legendary Bill Paxton. Yes. So it's just like, this movie's got all these things that work for it. Um, The other thing is, is like, all the stuff that we know, like the technology and the things that we know about the Predator, the majority of it comes from this movie. We get all, like, the net weapon. You get the flying disc. You get, you know, each one looks different. All this stuff. All these sweet weapons. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, a little bit about Predator 2. So, it was released 1990. And now, it is a actual, true, and proper sequel because it was written by the same dudes who wrote Predator 1. So, Jim and John Thomas. It was directed by Stephen Hopkins and starring the great, as always, I'm too old for this shit, Danny Glover. Ruben Blades, and you will know him most recently from Fear the Walking Dead as the old Central American father who's overprotective of his daughter. You've got the amazing Gary Busey, as always. Uh, Maria Conchita Alonso. She was in Running Man opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, And then, as you said, Bill Paxton. Kevin Peter Hall does his return as the Predator. And again, something about his performance, like he is the Predator in my mind. Um, it did come out to a shitload of negative reviews. People shit on this movie as soon as it was released. It made $57 million uh, in comparative to what the first one was made for and what, it, and what it grossed at the end of its run was considered a box office flop. So it's a little sad. Uh, the initial cut was rated NC-17, which is crazy to me because I think if they would release the same movie now, it would be rated NC-17. Like, the violence, like, is fucking brutal in the best way possible. It is violent. It gets my blood going with how violent it is. Gary Busey being split in half. Great. And just, like, the, like, the literal, like, bucket drop of blood when he's split in half. It's like he gets like, split in half and then five gallons of blood drop down. And they, they silence basically the scene and have just a big, like, glop effect, yeah, slow motion. Yeah. It's amazing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, I would like to see the NC-17 cut of this movie because by itself, it's violent. Like, the graphic sex that was, like, I mean, it's over the top. Everything about the movie is over the top. The stereotypes the are Jamaican over. The Jamaican and Colombian stereotypes, yes. King Willie. It's absolutely a, a movie of its time, I would say. Uh, Alan Silvestri returns to do the score. So there is some follow-through. So written by the same people, scored by the same person, produced by the same person. Directors change. And I, I think... Uh, whereas Predator 1 is timeless, Predator 2 is definitely a movie of its time. I feel... It it does show its age, definitely. I feel it's definitely... like It takes place in 1997, but it, it could you could have just said 1992 when it was made. Yeah. It reflects all of the racial tension, all of the troubles that were kind of going on during that time. Uh, so it's not... I would say it's a more it was a more exaggerated tension than what was actually happening at that time. But definitely some some green screen issues on some of the scenes. Yeah, I you know, but the ambition. You, you think about it, like you know, they didn't go to some 
They didn't go to Mexico, film in the jungle where they didn't have to do a lot of stuff. There's a lot of ambition. As you said, all the technology, all of the effects, all the the weapons that we associate with the Predator world all come from that movie. And not only that, this is the movie that ties in the Alien and Predator universes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the skull that is in the trophy room, if you will. And there's all sorts of crazy skulls in that room, which I'd be interested. Now, it shows that it's a alien skull, but how did they... Does an alien even have a, a skull like that to begin with? Yes, because that is an alien skull. But not in the mainline alien franchise, though. I'm because they're they they have acidic blood, right? They do. So, and they're a hybrid of that that whatever alien DNA and its host DNA, so the aliens can take different forms. So that alien skull that they show is a human alien hybrid because they look different depending on what alien that or what being they combine yes. with. But. But if you want to get a real scummy, <laughs> we can go back to the first Alien versus Predator movie. Oh, God. And go along with timelines, which they show that the Predators have been coming to Earth since at least uh, 1715. Because at the end of the movie, one of the Predators throws the flintlock pistol to Danny Glover. Yep. And it's, uh, and it's dated 1715 on there. And then my next question off of that is, do predators have a long lifespan? Touche. I was Or like did he uh, did this particular predator get that weapon from, you know, that timeline on earth from then or was it passed down to him or did he maybe take it from another predator? That's a really, you know, and you can go either way because I feel in some ways they would be f- very fiercely protective of their trophies. Like you don't take another man's trophies or predators trophies. Right. I mean, this is what they're working for. They are going to get trophies to test but their skills. At the same time, are they like a clan sort of they would seem to me like to be like a clan sort of system where there are certain things, achievements of your ancestors that would be passed down generation to generation. It's hard to say I'm anthropomorphizing uh, an alien made-up species, of course, but it's definitely interesting. You know, the thing is, like, they never answer certain things to me that I, I find more interesting about predators in general. So, obviously, they're very intelligent because they've mastered traveling through space yep. faster than the speed of light, presumably, because the nearest star is four million light years away so it would take four million years traveling at the speed of light to reach the nearest star to us so they have to travel faster than the speed of light or at the speed of light so we never explore other than the hunter aspect of predator the intelligence or the other culture do they, and it's shown in Predator 2, they've established that if you're nonviolent, they're not going to kill you. 
So if you're not threatening them, if you're not a hunter, or if you're not... Right, they uh, aren't going to waste their time. Either. They're not going to do anything with you. So do they ha- actually have more of a bartering system with other alien species that are nonviolent? Do they create all of their own technology? Or do they work with other species and barter like a... Because they come across as like a, a hunter-gatherer sort of early neolithic society in some ways like how they dress with their fucking loincloths and their fucking skull jewelry and shit like that and hunters the mesh tank tops the matrix sort of style uh they don't really go into that sort of thing they clearly can understand english they speak it in predator 2 uh and is heat vision really their their native vision or do they actually see like us because their eyeballs, how they're shaped, is not actually not a uh, how you'd receive infrared information. Well, in the first Predator movie, I mean, when the Predator took his helmet off to fist fight Arnold, it was like f- an extreme version of the heat vision. Right. But how the fuck would he even see what the fuck is going on? That's the problem is that infrared is actually, for as detailed as their culture is, it would imply that they're able to see other spectrums because if you look at that ship it's got a mural and that heat vision you can't see that mural and we don't see it through their vision so either the detail the the culture is accentuated influenced by their native if it is infrared or they could see like you and i and use infrared as a as a tool of enhancement so that's one of the things that i think about because like there are some, like, it's a pain in the ass to, like, fashion technology to fashion clothes with infrared. Because at some point in time, you can't see what the fuck you're doing. No. Right? So clearly, they have some other ability to achieve their technology and things like that, not using infrared. So is that achieved through working with other species? Or is that achieved because they're actually fucking genius? And if they're genius, it like, what is that? Or maybe we just can't interpret the way that they see, and that's the closest thing possible. Because what if a predator made a movie about humans hunting predators, and they tried to show our vision? Mm-hmm. How? But how could they interpret the way that we see with their vision? So maybe. If you can master space travel, you can master that. I'm just saying. And clearly they see in other spectrums of light because in that scene where Gary Busey's trying to like capture the dude, he switched it to ultraviolet. So he switched it to the other end of the spectrum to see those lights or to see them. Yeah. And then, I mean, that's through its helmet though too. Yeah. So that's why like, it, there's a whole bunch of really interesting things that again, while predators is serviceable as a sequel in the movie or in the, in the universe of the, a predator, what have you, it would be more interesting to see more in-depth, intimate interactions with within the predator world uh, because there's clearly a lot more going on in that whole world than just being completely ultra-violent hunters because it, it almost like they have a caste system that's implied that if you're a hunter, but not everyone's a hunter. Some people are weapons makers. Those dudes that are hunting are not weapons makers. They're using the super advanced purpose-built technology. And we never, it's just, 
It is what it is. We see it, and it is what it is. But I would think it'd be interesting to explore what a weapon maker in the Predator universe would be. Well, if we had a Predator movie where everything was Predator, and they were on planet Predator doing Predator things. That would be fucking amazing. That would be pretty cool. I mean, we can get some insight into it. But then someone's got to make up all this shit, and then they're just like, well, it would just be easy if we just made them killing people. And then what would happen was it'd end up being like Prometheus, and that's what we would get. I don't want that. I know that you hate Prometheus so much, but for what it is and what it tries to do, I respect it. It takes place in the movie or in the universe, but it doesn't try to be the thing that it's based off of. It tries to answer its own questions and pursue its own thing. And it's more in line with the first alien movie as far as, well, okay, that's a half sort of, because they do some stupid shit. Like alien covenant is a fucking trash movie. It's awful. But Prometheus at least follows its own logic a bit. It doesn't go far afield. It follows its own trail of garbage (laughs) to the dumpster. (laughs) To the dumpster and then sets itself on fire. Uh, I I enjoy it because Prometheus is shot beautifully. The effects are great. Yeah, the people all are very unlikable. But I don't give a fuck. It's got Idris Elba in it and... He's great in most things that he's in. I yet to see something that I'm like, you're lame in this. So anyways, I think that exploring that aspect, the things that are not talked about that are implied on the screen that we talk about, like all this amazing technology, this amazing culture, all of these things that are implied. And like, where the fuck does this super predator thing comes from? So predators and then the new movie now there's yes another super predator another super predator that's like even bigger so a predator in the real world i'm I'm putting my quotation fingers up they're at least seven foot something or another this predator that we see in the new the predator movie is like a good head height above a regular predator so they're eight foot at least where the fuck are they coming from? And maybe the the new movie will answer that question. I've heard a lot of theories about it's possibly we made them. It could be, you know, another, a subset of different species. I, you know, there's, at the end of the day, what I'm saying is there's a lot of untapped, interesting things in the universe that people have not explored in a live action setting that I think we can go for. And it could be, a heady movie. It could be a exploratory movie. It could be an adventure. Always violent. Has to be violent. Obviously, violence. That was the one thing going back again to the Alien versus Predator movies. That was one thing about the second one that I really appreciated is that it was as violent as it was. It was like, hey, here's an apology for how terrible that first one was. We're just gonna kill everyone. Mm-hmm. Pregnant women, psh, dead. Girl, you think is going to be a main character? dead right away fucking predator shuriken so what's interesting is that uh alien versus predator the initial one was pg-13 so that inherently alone really kneecaps and really inhibits anything interesting about what that could be because you have two extremely violent things 
intermix it. I wish it was like the game. The, I don't know. This Alien vs. Predator, the first movie, was a missed opportunity. Which game? The, the Atari- Capcom arcade game is the correct answer. <laughs> Indeed. There's a lot of missed opportunity, obviously, with uh, these movies. And um, I think the original like script for Prometheus by the original writer, like I read that script, it goes like way deep into the mythology. But then we get this other thing written by Damon Lindelof, which is like, what's in the box? Like, that's his thing. It's like, there's a magical box and what's in the box. And then we never explain the box. And I, you know, and then it's Ridley Scott. And I think Ridley Scott is capable of still making some really good movies. But then again, I think he really gets into uh, his little artistic flares of bullshit. So like The Martian, I thought was a decent movie. It was concise. It wasn't, it didn't have too many of the Ridley Scott flares that he's prone to now. But like Covenant was a dumpster fire of a movie and Prometheus was I'd give it a six me personally uh and then some of his other ones are just he I don't know he just goes off and does a Ridley Scott thing and no it seems like no one keeps him in check like yeah sure go ahead and do this because my understanding is when Prometheus was being made Lindelof was totally again he doesn't say this everyone always sucks that person's dick whoever the director is but he it was heavily implied that he would come in and he would just imagine the scene when he was sleeping the night before and then make them rewrite the movie to fit the scene so like that scene where the alien ship like goes on charlie's theron and like crushes her he had just that just came off the top of his head he had thought about it they had a script totally done and he just came in in the middle of production and just said, uh, what if we did this other thing instead? And then he had to rewrite around this whole this whole process. Well, yeah, no wonder why the movie oh. doesn't necessarily make sense because Ridley Scott's allowed to go off on these tangents and create something that's not as concise and as good as it could have been. And I know I'm hating on Lindelof a, a little too much. The Leftovers is fucking amazing. I don't know if you've seen it. You probably have not seen it. I haven't seen it. It's fucking. It really shows off the caliber of, of his writing and his ability to to do something. If he actually gets to sit down and actually think about it. Anyways, back to Predator Two. For yeah, Predator Two. Predator I love 2. it. I really in. I enjoyed Predator Two. I really like uh, Danny Glover in it. I think. As far as what you said, it's so far a different than the first movie that it works it makes it the perfect sequel because of that absolutely so because why would you want to see the same thing again with the same character and i think that's the problem though is like if you look at most of the rage of nerddom these days it's always like an impossible thing to achieve it has to be similar enough to the thing that the someone loves but still be different enough from the original thing so if you look at the argument against, say, uh, The Force Awakens versus The Last Jedi, people's main complaint about The Force Awakens is that it's too similar to New Hope. It's a ripoff. It's terrible. Okay, so we're going to do a movie that goes off on its own path 
it does its own thing, The Last Jedi. It's too different. It's not Star Wars. It's too different. And so there's a whole thing right now on the interwebs where someone is recutting The Last Jedi to meet how it should have been. Like, how stupid is that? So it's a, it's a lose-lose situation. Yeah, you can never make anyone happy. You can never make anyone happy. So I agree with you. Predator, I can't be happy no matter well, what. Right. You recognize, like, you're not at least consciously trying to run down and chase your happiness. You just... But, I mean, here's the, here's the thing. So the Predator goes to places where there's conflict, places where the temperature is very high. Yeah. And... In the scene when um, Gary Busey's character brings Danny Glover's character into their trailer and is talking about things, he shows them, you know, like here in Beirut this year and Vietnam this year. It's the same thing. These predators are going to all these places. So this particular time, the predators are visiting Los Angeles where there's conflict, where the temperature is high. You know, that just like opens up so many things like here's all these places in the world where the predator could go and what it can do. It's yeah. not going to go back to the same jungle to look for Arnold Schwarzenegger again. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm saying. There's an untapped, the potential for the predator series of the different avenues that could it explore and things that could dress are really infinite. But I think people are always going to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura, Bill Duke, like they, we become attached to these particular characters that we saw at first. And that story has been told. That story has been told, but then people want that exact story, but that's somehow different enough to not be the exact story. I, and, and that's why I like the predators. It really toes a very fine line of being nostalgic, but also telling its own thing and going off it's a it's a safer bet than Predator Two. Predator Two takes a lot of risks, to which I appreciate. I'm all for it. Like I really like, um, the characters are almost all anti the characters from the first movie. Like there's no character that is like the Bill Duke or the the Billy no, or right, the, yeah. any of the like. There's because they're all like super masculine in the first movie in their own way. Like. Billy, the Native American, who could just look in the jungle and say, there were 12 men on foot wearing size 12 boots who were carrying M16s and doing these various things. How the fuck you? That's not even possible. But it's a stereotypical Native American tracker character. And you've got Arnold, the the fearless leader who is intelligent. And you have all these other characters. But they're all some play on masculinity. They're just kind of tweaked to that. Where Predator 2 is... You've got Bill Paxson, who's the fucking blowhard, who everything is his specialty. Everything. Yes. Breathing air is his specialty. And who wanted to go into this shit, who transferred into the worst place possible. Right. And then you've got Danny Glover's character, who's too old for this shit. He kind of like... It carried over, definitely. It car- yeah. definitely carried over. Because like, Lethal Weapon came out in 80... Or is it 90 or the late 80s? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> well, the first one. I, I'm trying to remember. I definitely feel like Lethal we- Le- Weapon One came out in the late '80s, and then, uh, and he was too old for this shit. I mean, he's always been. But Predator Two, he never says it. He says some Arnold Schwarzenegger shit, like "You're an ugly motherfucker," but he never says I'm too old for this shit. But the point being is, like, he's very different than Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, and 
you know, be it Ruben Blades or or the other characters, they're all kind of the antithesis to the characters that we saw in the first movie. So I like all of that. It's like how are different people going to react to the Predator in the same way? And I like the fact that the resistant hero wins against the Predator. Go ahead. So Lethal Weapon was 87. Lethal Weapon 2 was 89. So... I'm too old for this shit. He comes out in '88, too. and fucking 1992 is when Predator Two comes out. So like he's already, and in the Predator Two, he's been in the Force what 20 years? That's 18 years. He did 18 years on the Force, 15 years on the street, I believe, is what it was said. Because he came up with what's his head, Ruben Blades character, Danny. Danny, Danny Boy, Danny Boy, for 15 years in the street. So like he's he's very clearly like he's a lieutenant. He's been in the shit for a long time. He's seen it all, done it all, and he's able to like get through the shit. And I love how like he does it in the most like non-masculine Arnold way possible. Like he's just like, "Fuck this! I hate my life. I don't want this <laughs> to happen." Well, Arnold's like he's creating all these booby traps in the first movie. Like he's all like fucking sweated up and like muscular and like like the whole like predator one to me is like an extended scene of arnold flexing like he's making his yeah. homemade bow and arrow like or like lifting that giant log yes, up yes pull everyone pulling on the rope where their muscles are just going to like explode <laughs> they're so big like their skin's going to split because it can't hold their muscles <laughs> and so i like how like in predator 2 everyone's kind of tired and it doesn't necessarily mean you need brawn to kill a predator. You can use. I think it's a good analogy for having a job. Like here's all these people in Predator Two who are just like tired and they're sick of this shit and they gotta do it and they don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect metaphor for the average work day. <laughs> you know what the? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, question that goes unanswered is who's the father of Maria's character in Predator Two. I kind of got the vibe that it was Bill Paxton. I want to believe it's Bill Paxton. They didn't have enough time for that to really happen unless that little like fetus heat shot was super like super magnified. But that's I would like to think that it's Bill Paxton's kid. So Jerry, his character in the movie. Uh what's interesting is that we get a visual cue to her being pregnant throughout the film and I, I never had picked it up before where she like kind of like favors her stomach a little bit like she's like like she's got bad gas yeah but then it's like oh no you're actually pregnant that's foreshadowing right Fore- there <laughs> that's what that's called suck the foreshadowing dick but maybe she thought she had gas and that's what it, when my appendix was blowing up i thought i had to either puke or poop really bad and that wasn't <laughs> the case that's a recurring theme of anyone that's ever had appendicitis are issues with their gallbladder it's like they thought that they had eaten really bad food and they had either terrible gas it's yeah or i ate at the nook before i had the second biggest <laughs> burger they had. I wanted the biggest one, but I wasn't feeling so good. So I went with Guy's Big Bite, Guy Fieri, because he went there. Oh, my and God. So I had that one, and I thought Fuck that him. that didn't. <laughs> yes. And that's it, it, so that's a funny thing is that uh, that's the, the symptom is people like, I ate something bad. I, next time I'll think maybe I'm pregnant. I need to have a. <laughs> 
<laughs> I need to have a predator come check me out with its heat vision. That's a really amazing sonogram, that fucking device. That's like getting a CAT scan for free. I want a predator to scan me right now. Yeah, what's wrong know, with me? Yeah, I want to know what if I have I don't want to go to the hospital and spend all that fucking money. Oh, fuck that. Nor do I just want to sit around for 45 I'm not armed, minutes. and I'm really skinny, so <laughs> yeah. pick me up and look at me. Which is all perfect. Ties back to my original point is, who created that technology? Did they do it? They did design it. I would imagine that, yes. If what they... if it's a forced handicap? Oh. What if they're doing that to increase the challenge that they have? I would, I would see that as something as plausible. Now, what throws a wrench into that is two, the two versions of the Super Predators. I'm going to pretend that the Super Predators aren't really a thing, and we're going to talk about the Predator. But the Predator, which is a mainline sequel, which acknowledges both Predator 1 and Predator 2 as being valid installments into the series, is a thing. Now... We could see that movie when it comes out, and it is a completely logical, maybe human-made predator. Somebody's Looney Tunes drunk. You, all these hiccups and burping. Fuck. Yeah, you all right there? Oh, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> As you hiccup again. As I hiccup again. So I guess, you know... I don't have anything else really to add to it. Could probably end on that. No, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think we've said everything we need to say about the Predator. Solid movie. Uh, Elijah Craig. Solid booze. Solid booze. So until next time, this is Eric. Kyle. <laughs> Robot Kyle, specifically. Until, until next time. 